Our first scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah, verse 61, chapters 10 through 11. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself out with a garland, or as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of this word. Well, our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Luke. And though separated by a few hundred years from the prophet Isaiah, uh, we hear a similar theme in this morning's reading. We're in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 55. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Then Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promises he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word as well. Let us pray together. Holy Spirit, descend into our midst. Take my words and transform them into your word, that we may know you better, that we may experience you here in our midst, that we may understand your word, but more than that, be changed and shaped by your word here today. And so I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here will be acceptable and even pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in the TV show Peaky Blinders, which is a British drama that debuted in 2013, if you hear the phrase, in the bleak midwinter, 
you can bet that something awful is about to happen. This show, Peaky Blinders, it tells the loosely based on true events story of a crime family, the Shelby crime family in northern England in post-World War I England. This is another addition to that genre of television shows that star an anti-hero, where, where the good guys are bad guys, like, like Breaking Bad, which was about a uh, drug-dealing high school chemistry teacher, or, or The Sopranos, which was about mafiosos, right? Um, in the Peaky Blinders, the good guys are very, very bad guys. And throughout the six seasons of the show's run, if you hear the words, in the bleak midwinter, typically someone is about to get offed. <laughs> and if you were to go no farther than that famous first line of Christina Rossetti's 1872 poem, it would indeed be a fittingly dark verse to punctuate such dark moments. If indeed we continue past that first line and through the first full stanza of Rossetti's poem, we would be left with the impression that this was a poem about the utter depravity of the human condition and the, and the harsh world into which we are thrown at birth. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter, long ago. It is said that the poem and the song to which it was set in the early 1900s was popular among British soldiers fighting in World War I in the trenches of Western Europe. This is a, a fact that may have inspired the writers of Peaky Blinders to include it in their show. Forced to dig and dwell in the iron-hard ground of the Somme and Verdun, those World War I soldiers likely identified with the chilling bleakness of this evocative verse. But maybe you can identify with it, too. Maybe this morning you hear those words and you, you remember a scene in your own life, a moment of bleakness, a time when the whole world seemed barren and bereft, uncaring and unresponsive. But that first verse, that first stanza of the poem, it really is just set dressing for the true message of the poem. After all, this is a poem about Christmas. Originally composed at the request of the editors of Scribner's Magazine, Rossetti had titled the poem A Christmas Carol. And I could just imagine the magazine editor receiving the envelope in the mail of the poem and, and opening it, unfolding the top, top half and seeing that title, A Christmas Carol, and thinking to themselves, oh, this will be fun, and then unfolding it a little further and reading that first chilling line. Yet clearly the editor kept reading and appreciated the poetic genius of, of what came next, and so should we. In verse 2, Rossetti moves from the cold world below to the heavens above. It begins, our God, heaven cannot hold him. A theological declaration of the majesty of God, sharply counterposed to the bleakness 
of the human condition. It is then that she truly gets to the message of the poem, what makes it in the end a Christmas carol. The second stanza concludes, In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed for the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Perhaps Rossetti set out in this poem to answer the perennial question that faithful people have wondered about from time immemorial. How does God appear in the world? Many people who who believe in the existence of an author of the universe, who believe in some kind of higher power and higher being, have wondered how such a being could be seen or felt or known by merely human beings. Where should we look? What hints can we perceive that God is real? Well, the Christmas story presents us not just with hints, but an answer to this question. It doesn't point us to beautiful sunsets or to the powerful thunderclouds or to the hallowed halls of government or even to the sacred spaces of a church sanctuary. No, the Christmas story directs our attention to a far humbler place where we see God's advent to an unwed Palestinian Jew, to her visit to her relation Elizabeth, whom she went to see in her fear and uncertainty after receiving a revelation from God about the baby she was carrying. The Christmas story points to the womb in which the spirit stirs to a stable and a manger because there was no other place for them to go. The Bible says that that is where God is real. And there's something deeply mystifying, and to some people at least, even insulting about this picture of God. Why should God, the God who is God, come into the world in this lowly way? It is at once a stunning indictment of the world, that there wasn't enough room for God. And also at the same time, a tragic theological vision that the God of the whole universe could be so utterly humiliated. Yet Rossetti's words are well chosen here. She says, a stable place sufficed. The next stanza, which is not included in the hymn version for reasons that will be obvious given the prudish Victorian era from which this uh, comes, it continues in this way. It says, enough for him, enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, breast full of milk and manger full of hay, Enough for him whom angels fall before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. This is Christmas, Rossetti says, that in the midst of a hard world, in a frigid season, God is born a child for whom a breast full of milk and a manger full of hay is enough warmth and enough nourishment, not just to balance out life's mysteries, but to overcome them. It is enough. Christmas is God's gift of enough. God's assurance that grace is sufficient not just to meet our needs, but to change the world. In Mary's words, it's enough to bring the powerful down from their thrones and to lift up the lowly, to fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. Christmas is the revolutionary revelation of the reality of the gospel, That God has, God is, and God will turn this bleak, cold world 
into a warm and loving family. For the past few years, when we have gotten to this third Sunday of Advent, the theme of joy has always presented itself. That pink candle, it says joy, right? But for the last few years, I have repeatedly invoked uh, the words of Dr. B.J. Miller, who is a palliative care doctor and the author of The Beginner's Guide to the End. He once said that joy is when the life you want is the life you have. Joy on his conception is a sense of satisfaction, the real satisfaction of one's desires, one's needs, to have those things utterly and completely met. And while I have appreciated this as a working definition of joy, I think it also holds the seeds of the unease with which we greet the reality of the Christmas message. It comes down to this. Dr. Miller's definition puts the onus of joy on you. It's in the second person. Joy is when the life you want is the life you have. It sounds like joy is something that we are responsible for accomplishing, something that we achieve like a prize. But as we look out at the world, I think we cannot help but feel that nothing we could ever do would achieve the kind of vision of justice and peace that the prophets from Isaiah to Mary have declared Nothing we can do can stop death from taking loved ones or hearts from being broken by betrayal. Nothing we can do can radically and finally shift the status quo that makes some people rich and keeps many more people poor. Nothing we can do can end the war in Palestine or Ukraine or the civil wars raging across the continent of Africa or even the political discord and polarization in our own country. We certainly resist this feeling. We want to do something. We don't like to acknowledge the powerlessness that we feel before the grand problems of the world. And yet, and yet, we feel it nonetheless. Sometimes we, we think we can make a difference and we embrace social justice and political activism that says that if you just organize well enough and you work hard enough, these things can be resolved. Or we turn away from the world's problems and we focus on self-improvement so that even if we can't create peace in the Middle East, at least we can, we can optimize ourselves so that we can be satisfied with what we see in the mirror or on our own bank statement or in the house in which we live. But the message of Christmas, the message of Christmas is indeed that we can never make this world amenable to God, that this world is indeed bleak and harsh and hard. But thanks be to God that God makes God's self amenable to our world. So what I've come to realize, friends, is that joy is not something we achieve, either individually or collectively. Joy is not something we proactively create. Rather, joy is the feeling evoked in response to the advent of God. It is a faithful reaction to God's action, to what God is doing, to what God is creating, with which we can participate and join in, but which ultimately is never ours alone. And so in this Advent season, we are not creating joy, we are not manifesting joy for ourselves, but rather preparing ourselves 
to respond with joy to the appearance of God in the world. The church and its traditions, all its spiritual practices, all of these things are about setting the table at which we may sit, but where Christ is the founder and provider of the feast. Joy is on the menu, but we miss it if we brush past and convince ourselves that we can just get by on snacks and scraps from this world. No, in the Christmas season, we are invited and welcomed to a banquet set by God. Again, not because we deserve it or have earned it, but because we have a gracious host who invites us. Joy is not something we are entitled to or deserve. The world is far too broken to believe something like that. It is not something we can earn, lest we should boast in the achievement, as the Apostle Paul wrote. We must always remember, but in this Christmas season especially, I think, we must remember that we are not blessed because we are good. We are blessed because God is good. Despite the coldness and the cruelty of the world, God is good enough to still come and dwell in it, to save us when we've gone astray, to clothe our sin-sick being in righteousness, and to cause joyful praises to spring up like green shoots. God does this. In the bleak midwinter, joy comes, and it comes from the Lord. Thanks be to God.